What I want to talk about tonight is the subject of thought. There's the first two verses of the Dhammapada, which is one of the one of the books of the suttas, of the saying of the Buddha. Different translations, but this is a pretty typical one. Mind is the forerunner of all actions. All deeds are led by mind, created by mind. If one speaks or acts with an impure mind, suffering follows as the wheel follows the hoof of an ox pulling a cart. Mind is the forerunner of all actions. All deeds are led by mind, created by mind. If one speaks or acts with a serene mind, happiness follows as surely as one's shadow. The power of the mind, the power of thought in our life, as I'm sure I don't need to tell you after you've been sitting here for six weeks, is really amazing. I mean, we create our whole world with thought. Just that I can sit here and force air through my vocal cords and make noises, and it communicates, hopefully, to you in some kind of sensible way. It doesn't communicate to the the two nuns here because English is not their language. It just is amazing how powerful this process of thought is. And I don't need to add how much we struggle with it and fight with it, suffer from it. How much just talking to people, it seems like the the unspeakable, Spoken or unacknowledged goal is to get rid of thinking once and for all. But when we really look at a thought, and we've said this a lot, what is it? It's just nothing. It just comes out of nowhere. It vanishes back into wherever it came from. It's, it's like a phantom, phantasmagorical. There's nothing to it. So what was that tangle of thoughts that you were hitting your head against the wall about yesterday? It was so real. Where is it now? What was it then? So I I find this whole thing fascinating since we suffer from it so much and I want to talk a little about it. You know that quotation that Stephen and Joseph both read from Kala Rinpoche about how we live in illusion and the appearance of things. Why? What is this illusion and how do we get so tangled up in it? Why does it seem so real? A big contributing factor is how we understand or don't understand and relate to thoughts, to the thinking process. The often Asian teachers, when we're working with Asian teachers on a retreat, will comment about how much we Westerners think. It really amazes them. We'll take any sensation or experience and explain it and define it and interpret it and make up a story. 
I mean, actually, we do with almost every experience, much more than seems to be the case in Asia. You know, Lupandito say, you, you Americans really think a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. You know, there's going to be a sensation, and oh, this is a blockage. It's here from my childhood. It's always how I related to my mother, and just on and on in this whole story. And we're really suffering from it. You know, and one of us will say, well, what's happening right now? Oh, yeah, twinging. You know? But just fighting with thought, you know, I don't think it's the answer somehow. Nisargadatta Maharaj says once um, that if we examine our mind closely, we'll see that it's seething with thoughts. It may go blank occasionally. A becalmed mind is not a peaceful mind. This peace is very brittle, this peace of the blank mind. What you're calling peace is only an absence of disturbance. Real peace cannot be disturbed. So often I think if what we really are looking for is this becalmed mind, we could just have lobotomies and go home. (laughs) That's not what it's about. That's got nothing to do with peace. So how does this dream world created by thought become so real? Why does it get created in the first place? I want to talk about a a couple of different aspects of this. First one, beginning on the basic level of perception, in the first place we begin to get confused. And we've spoken about this some before. Perception being, as we've said, that quality of recognition, of discernment in the moment. It includes memory, but it's not just memory. So if I go, there's hearing, and when the mind goes, oh, clapping the hands, that recognition is perception, present in every moment of consciousness. Now, the trouble can start right here. It doesn't have to get far from perception at all. The Dalai Lama said once, all of our difficulties stem from mistaken perception. Now, all of them, he's saying. That's why there's so much emphasis on direct experience or true knowledge. I mean, that's our whole practice, is emphasis on direct experience. So what do we mean mistaken perception? And why do we misperceive? And again, we've talked about this partly before. That when in the moment of perception, that moment of recognition, there is in the consciousness any of of our friends, the kalesas, the afflictions or torments of mind, greed, hatred, delusion, fear, pride, conceit, identification, when any of these, or many others, you know the list, are present in a moment of perception, it distorts the basic perception so that we're not seeing what's actually happening. So you can experience this yourself. You can play with it in the retreat here because it's a great time 
to be able to observe this point of perception. Notice, and I think Joseph mentioned this in one of his talks, that instant of sense experience prior to recognition, prior to perception. For example, you might know that it's hearing, but it hasn't been recognized. Know that it's smelling, but you don't know it's bread cooking yet. That moment, just prior to recognition. And then you can easily see how if in that moment you happen to be wallowing in a fit of aversion, that really colors how we perceive, how that perception arises. Like um, this place we teach in California, the meditation building has a big sign in it that's called a preceptory. And one woman came one day and she said she's in this fit of aversion and she looked at, she's seen it a million times, and it said as clear as day, it said purgatory. (laughs) That's the kind of way that perception is mistaken. Or imagine to see how this mistaken perception then leads to a whole string of associations, memories, and ends up in action based on this whole story. Like imagine being in alone at night in an unfamiliar empty house. And a, 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 an empty house can make all kinds of noises. Like this can happen to me if I don't know the noises and I'm alone and it's at night. Each new banging, cracking noise, there's that moment of just hearing without recognition. And then if I happen to be afraid or nervous, that colors the perception as someone's trying to beat down the door. And I think, well, really believing that, that's the explanation, that's the perception. And it leads to a whole series of emotional reactions and fear and judgment. It leads to running around the house, checking all the doors, making sure everything's locked. And they think, oh, well, I guess it wasn't that. And then there's another noise again. Bang. Oh, it's mice running around. There's mice, you know. And then that builds up a whole story. And that's the truth. And then it happens again. And I'm looking out the window and think, oh, it's just the wind banging this limb against the window. And it's at that time happens to be an accurate perception. But each of those was just as true in the whole story, the whole reality of thought and reaction and emotion that gets built up from it. So that's... Is the mic on still? So those are kind of obvious examples about how the presence in a moment of any of these qualities, these torments of mind, distorts perception. And that leads to a whole basic story that isn't true. The root distortion really is ignorance. And so I want to talk about that a little bit. Ignorance meaning this confusion, 
cloudiness, dullness of mind, so that we perceive wrongly. Ignorance is an experienceable thing. It's not like some monolithic, from the beginning of time, unchanging thing, ignorance, you know, our given condition, and and we can never recognize it. It arises and passes on a moment-to-moment basis, just like anything else. Basic misperception of ignorance. I was walking, I was in Switzerland last, this summer, and I was walking in the forest with a friend, and I looked up through the trees, and I said, wow, look at that, this big yellow and white striped circus tent. I wonder what that's doing here in the woods. And my friend looked at it, right? It's a rock, just a big rock with lichen growing on it. That's a basic distortion of perception from ignorance, just not seeing what's there. The mind kind of pulls out a few bits of perception and puts it together from memory and just makes something up. A circus tent, you know. We do it more than we might like to think. (laughs) That's what the problem is. (laughs) That's why the value of beginner's mind, where we just see something without having to draw on all our past memories to make it into a little package that fits what we know. So this experience, the, the quality, the mental factor really of ignorance we can begin to sort of recognize when it's present in a dull sort of way. It's like, um, it's like a fog, sort of. You know, it's a sense of dullness, sort of darkness. You might really want to see clearly, but you just can't. It's just foggy and dull. Um, you can't quite tell what's going on. Or I liken it in myself to... Those, do you ever have those kind of dreams when you're in the morning when you're trying to wake up and you just can't wake up, but the whole dreams about trying to wake up, that happens to me a lot, and everything's upside down and backwards and I know everything's wrong, but I can't get out of it. That's what ignorance feels like to me. And we can start to recognize, you know, you're just kind of like really zoned out and dull, but you know you're trying to be present. And it's not like your fault, it's just that ignorance is present in that moment. From this cloudiness, this fogginess, what tends to emerge in our perception is wrong view. It's confusion, not seeing clearly. Sort of like I said with with the tent in the rock. The classic example that they give in the texts, and I like it because it's so straightforward, but it encompasses the cloudiness, is if you're walking in a forest at twilight. And you can sort of see, but you can't see clearly. You can sort of see the path and sort of see the trees and big rocks. It reminds me of when I was in a nun in Thailand and I was staying in a place that was jungle. You know, and the paths are broad and you can sort of see, but you can't quite see clearly. And there's lots of vines and stuff and you get close, you see something hanging down from a tree and as you get closer, it's a snake. In that moment of perception, of seeing it as a snake, that gives rise to thinking about it, to all our associations with snakes. There's lots of poisonous snakes in Thailand, so it can give rise to fear, the sense of the 
uh, of the emotional reaction that goes with that recognition, the feeling that the woods are unfriendly, I don't have a flashlight, how will I get out of here without being hurt? We get scared, and it, it affects our whole reaction to the situation. If someone comes along with a flashlight and turns it on, you see, oh, it's just divine. The misperception vanishes, and so too does all the reaction to it. This is what we're doing. This misperception is what we're doing so much of the time, really all the time when we're not paying attention, in our perception of who we are. This basic root misperception, this basic root of ignorance, is the fundamental misperception of ourselves. I mean, that's what we're kind of hammering away at every night when we're talking. When we don't really look at, in that fresh way, without assumptions, our experience, moment to moment, we usually are acting from what they call three inverted, or that kind of mean like upside-down perceptions, three inaccurate perceptions that we don't investigate and assume to be true. And they're the three we talk about a lot, that we, we, see what, we see the permanent in what is constantly changing. We keep thinking we're finding satisfaction where it's not to be found. And we keep thinking that there's a solid self-existence when there isn't one anywhere. It's not just that these are thoughts. These are conclusions and assumptions that we make unconsciously and we then perceive our experience in that light. And then everything just, the illusion just takes off from there. Some perceptions are easy Some misperceptions are easy to see through. Like, for example, as soon as I saw a rock, I never again could see a circus tent in the rock. When you see that the snake is a vine, you know it's a vine, it's over. But this basic misperception of ourself is much harder because it's so fundamental. For one thing, it's how we think we've experienced the world and ourselves for so long that it's hard to remember to even look at it freshly. That's really one of the points of meditation practice, to learn how to be fresh with each perception. We take it so for granted we don't even know that we have that assumption. And also, as we've said, the change is so rapid, it's hard to see, unless we look really closely. It's like not long ago, I was at a a printer's, and they were showing me how um, printing of color photographs works. So they took a very elaborate, lovely color photograph and had me look at it through this little certain kind of a microscope, I guess, something printers use. And when you look at the photograph, it completely breaks up. It's nothing but dots of four different colors, and only four different colors of these dots. And that's all that photograph was. It was really amazing to see that. Looking that closely, it's clearly nothing but dots. I don't see any kind of solid wholeness to it. In that way, when we look, the veil of our illusion is completely lifted. And it's no problem. It's just so clear. It's not that we lose anything. 
because there was nothing solid there in the first place. The fear that comes up about it isn't about actually losing something, it's just a kind of unfamiliarity. But on the other hand, when I take away that little microscope thing and I look at the picture, I don't see colored dots anymore. It's again this very elaborate, lovely color photograph. And so it's a lot like that with us. Even though I know, I really know from experience that there's nothing solid here. It's just a constant process of mental, physical change arising and passing away. As soon as I'm not really looking, that perception isn't there and I feel really solid. You know, and so it really takes this willingness to keep looking. One of my teachers said that when you look, you don't see anything. There's no problem. When you don't look, you see samsara. That's where we get caught. And that's why our expectations are so blinding, because they're based on our prior conclusions and not on this freshness of seeing. So another reason it's hard to see through these inverted perceptions, like I'm just using for an example the one of impermanence, the one that we're permanent, is because once we've made these unconscious conclusions on permanent and we perceive things in that light, we tend to ignore or discount perceptions that don't fit in. And we've talked about this before. I know in relationship to emotions where people will say, you know, I've been in this one emotion all day. And we'll keep saying, well, really, look. And everyone, well, I haven't been gloomy all day. I've been gloomy and happy and bored and hungry and sleepy and oh, gloomy. And, and a lot of people here have reported having that experience. We can do it on a more subtle level, too. Often people will say, well, I really want to explore my emotions, but they just don't last long. I'm doing something wrong. Or come in really upset and say, I just cannot sustain attention on any object very long. I have no concentration. But when we probe, we find out, yeah, it's because no object is lasting very long. Things are really changing rapidly. And rather than let in that perception, we try and twist it to fit our previous conclusion that things are solid. When it shakes up our conclusions, our tendency is not to want to let in the perception. So that's why there's so much emphasis on just being with the bare experience. Whatever definition we make up, and we're making them all up, doesn't last very long. It's never true across the board all the time. When we see that what's true today as a description of your experience has absolutely no relevance tomorrow as a description of your experience, it becomes a lot easier to let go of the definition and the assumption and just come back to the bare perception. And that is what our mindfulness is all about. Thich Nhat Hanh says, to have a correct perception we need to have a direct encounter. So that's what we're doing here, just having direct encounters, moment to moment to moment. So that's one part, how the kind of illusion, how we get so tangled up 
in a construction of thoughts starts with this basic misperception on a moment-to-moment level. The other part I want to talk about tonight is, and I'm sure you've seen this, just how amazingly quick the mind is to move from that perception to a whole incredibly elaborate construction of thought and story and emotion and self-identity, just like that. I mean, just a cough, recognition of cough, depending on the mental state, depending on how much pain there is in your body, depending on your prior conditionings about cough. In this amount of time, you could have constructed a whole world of yourself in the hospital with pneumonia. You could have constructed a whole sense of what an incredibly insensitive, vile person that is, sitting in the other part of the hall, coughing, really solid. And like in no time, in no time. Such a solid reality, and it seems really true in that moment. This process of moving from bare perception of hearing, recognition of cough, to a whole story about the disease process and your history of disease and what you think about people who don't cover their mouth when they cough or whatever, is called papancha. It's one of my favorite words. It is translated usually as proliferation. It's kind of this immediate and endless expansion, proliferation, entanglement of thought that arises from perception, where the initial experience is so quickly and so completely hidden by the whole construction that comes on top of it. So that's, I want to talk a bit about that. The Buddha, in, in describing this process of papancha, he's talking about visual consciousness, and then he goes through, as they do in the suttas, he goes through each of the six sense doors. But he talks about visual consciousness arising when there's contact with the eye, the visual object, and visual consciousness, that's contact. Due to contact arises feeling. What one feels, one perceives, that recognition. What one perceives, one thinks about, has thoughts about. Now he's just describing this bare process. Out of these associations, these thoughts, papancha is manufactured. That's the translation Vimala uses, manufactured. And by papancha is the proliferation, projection, ideas, descriptions, you name it. And then, kind of a loose translation of the next couple of lines is, these notions, this papancha, then assail and overwhelm a person who's not mindful of the process. And it really feels like this. Assail is like, uh, if you don't speak English as new language, like being attacked, being overwhelmed. It's like you're just completely under the power of these ideas, of this papancha. Or as one commentator puts it, it's the tendency of imagination to break loose and run riot. That's really what it feels like when we've been spending five minutes or an hour just struggling with some construction of thought 
it really does feel like we're under attack. This is papancha. It gets so solid and so concrete. It's fueled just as misperception arises due to the confusions, the kalesas present in a moment of perception. Papancha is also fueled by these mental states in the mind. So, for, for example, there's the original misperception they say on aversion, which then projects, it's as if it projects the inner experience out onto the object and then fuels our reactions, our emotions, our thoughts. A simple example, once I was in the hospital, and sometimes you can get, when you've been in the hospital, well, kind of a, it's not quite psychotic, but kind of a very distorted state of mind. (laughs) And I was in that just very fearful, and this nurse came at six in the morning to wake me up, to weigh me. And that's another thing, why do they need to do that? But anyway, I was in a fearful state of mind. And the misperception, the fear, like projected onto my visual perception of her. And I really saw her as demonic, as really evil at that moment of her coming. And then that fear proceeded to fuel my reactions and my thoughts. And I ended up like just screaming at the poor woman, really lost in fear. That's how Papancha not only distorts perception, but just continues to fuel our actions. And the next time she came, I was fine, and she was really afraid. I could see it in her face. (laughs) I felt terrible. (laughs) So Papancha can be fueled by any of these, you know, any of these kalases, any of these, habits of mind. There's three particular kalesas that they speak of often as being really strong and frequent fuel for this takeoff of papancha. One of them, as we've talked already, is, is that of wrong view. And as we all know, that's kind of really the basic fuel for papancha. Anytime that we're referring back to a sense of a separate solid self, we know we're in for trouble one way or the other because we're already out of sync with what's really true. The whole desire for pleasure and fear of pain comes out of this basic wrong view. And all the thoughts and emotions and actions, I mean, really, if you look at it, if I look at it, how much of my life is driven by this this basic form of papancha, proliferation, based on a sense of myself and wanting pleasure. So I'm not going to say a lot more about that. Um, It's really our whole practice is exploring that. A place to really watch the process of papancha itself, just to become mindful and aware of the process. And I think this isn't just like scientific interest. It really does lead to not being tangled up in this web of construction. is The second uh, real fuel for papancha is, of course, our second old friend, and that's craving. Really watch how it works. How in the moment of craving in the mind, it projects desirable qualities out onto whatever the object craved is. Like that Tibetan saying I said the other, the other night of putting feathers on the object making it attractive. That's the first 
kind of movement of papancha. But then watching our experience as craving has entered into our perception, how it leads to so much mental and emotional and even physical activity, how far the papancha, the proliferation, takes us from the bare experience. For example, just simple, you're sitting, you're pretty present, and suddenly you remember this yogi need request that you put in a couple of days ago, and you think, gosh, it should be here by now. I really need those cough drops. And suddenly craving comes up. I've got to have those cough drops. I'm sure it must be here. They've certainly had time to go to Bread and Circus by now. And the thoughts just proliferate. The emotions proliferate. And it's all you can do to keep from jumping up and running to look at the note board to see if the note's there. You're just sure it's there. And in fact, you might even go and read your name on a note that doesn't remotely look like your name because you're sure it's there. This is the, this is papancha. This is proliferation. It not only leads to constructions of thought, it also proliferates in action. You'll see when you leave here, if you can even imagine that, you probably can't even imagine it now, but you feel, you'll feel calm, things are simple, we do one thing at a time. Watch how fast the papancha moves from thinking into action and suddenly you have to do this and make this phone call and make this date and go do this and go to the store. It's really amazing to watch how fast it happens. So here it's great. You can just watch it in relationship to wanting a note on the board or cough drops or something. I mean, in, and in the world, this type of proliferation based on craving is what leads to the solid nation-state identities. It leads to wars. It leads to a sense of this is my land, this is your land. You know, it's, it's solid. And at that point, to try and tell somebody this is all just proliferation based on craving from a particular <laughs> sense data. You know, forget it. Way too far gone. The other kind, another aspect of craving, not just craving things, but craving for becoming, which is also, I find, very interesting to watch this craving for becoming. How many different becomings, different definitions of yourself do you go through in a day. Watch how the proliferation of thoughts as we begin to hook into a particular idea, a particular definition, and that begins to really solidify in a becoming. It's so quick and changing, but we keep believing in it. And this is also papancha. It's also a form of craving. I like to, to play with it when I'm, when I'm on retreat. You know, just notice, I'm sure you all have, how you tell yourself stories all day, describe your experience, make up definitions of what you're doing, on and on and on. What is so amazing is that we keep believing it, on and on and on. And this, again, is papacha. You notice you're doing your yogi job, just vacuuming. I'm very mindful, and the thought comes, I'm being so mindful. I'm really getting this down, how to be mindful in motion, you know? Pleasant, this is nice, pride, I'm doing great. Right then there's craving, it's like a becoming. Becoming in that moment a mindful person, a good yogi. And as we all know, 
expands into being, you know, the next great spiritual world teacher, being introduced <laughs> to the Dalai Lama, whatever the particular story is. It's really who we are. That's Papancha. That is a total illusion, you know, and in that moment, that's really who we think we are. In the next moment, oh my God, I've been lost in thinking, you know, unpleasant sensation, aversion, judgment. How could I even think such things? I can't even be mindful of vacuuming for more than two seconds in a row. I'm the worst yogi here. Or as someone said to me, I have a congenital defect. You know, I can never be mindful. I won't be mindful for more than two minutes. I might as well leave. And that's really solid. Whole tangle of thoughts. And we're making it all up. We're making it all up. I was sitting here uh, a couple of years ago. I was sitting in my room back in the Catskills. And just sitting, as you do, minding my own business. And the thought came up, oh, I'm so alone. Kind of neutral. And then immediately glommed on to, oh, I'm so alone here. I could die back here. No one would notice for three days. (laughs) It's really, no one knows how lonely, you know. And just, not just the thoughts, the emotions come up really strong a real sense of Carol, all the whole story went on and on. Suddenly I thought, oh, well, since we're making it all up, I think I'll just try a different story. I did this really consciously. So I was still in the, oh, I'm so alone. So I deliberately said, you know, it's really wonderful to have the opportunity to be so alone. And immediately, all the attendant emotions on that particular thought came up. I started feeling really joyful. I felt so inspired and grateful to have the chance to be so alone, you know, for two months in practice. It was really amazing because there was no way I could pretend either of those was true. It was thoughts and emotions. Yeah, true in that moment, and that those were the thoughts and emotions in the moment. But that's all they were. The Buddha says that if we're going to identify with any part of our experience, which of course he's saying we shouldn't, but if we're going to identify with any part, it would be better to choose the body because at least it doesn't change so rapidly. He said the mind is changing so much quicker than the body that it's really crazy to identify with that. But that's really where we can so easily get caught. Again, one of my Indian teachers. If you become something, death awaits you. If you don't become something, there is no death or birth. And we're talking moment to moment, becoming and not becoming. But can we live without self-definition? You know, can we do that? It doesn't mean to destroy the definitions, but just to see. Like when I was sitting back there, that that's all they are. They're just proliferation of thought and emotion and description based on an ex- a sense experience. It's very freeing. It can also be scary not to have a sense of definition. Even a bad definition we might like better than no definition. The third kind of um, the third fuel for papancha that's often spoken of is that of mana, the Pali word mana, translated as conceit. 
It's not just pride, but it's as we've mentioned before, this sense of comparing. You know, I'm better than, I'm worse than, or I'm equal to. All of this is this mental factor of conceit. And I know from talking to people that just about everybody here has had real attacks of experiencing this nature of comparison and just how unpleasant and how suffering it can be. It comes in interviews so much. And it comes up about anything, anything, you know, people comparing one breath to the next breath, one sitting to the last sitting. All it takes when the, when the conceit is present in the mind is for someone to walk by slowly. That's it, you know, it's finished. They're slower than me, I'm no good. I'm slower than them, I'm fantastic. We're going just equal, but they're not one of the people I think is a good yogi and we're only going equal. Or they're the person that I really think is a fantastic yogi and I'm walking just as slowly. You know, and this whole, it's very strong, it's very subtle, this, this comparison, this conceit. It's said to be one of the last delusionary qualities, so to speak, that goes on our path because it's so subtle and so kind of pervasive. But one thing that weakens it is our ongoing understanding of, perception of, impermanence of anicca. And you could see how that can weaken a sense of conceit because when we see that everything's changing, there's no solid thing to compare anything to. So, for example, in walking, you know, oh, I'm walking so slow. But five minutes later, I'm walking fast and they're walking slow. There's not kind of any solid thing to compare to. It really, uh, we start to see that everything's in continual flux. And comparison makes no sense because it's just constantly shifting sets of conditions. And comparing, it just absolutely makes no sense when we are seeing things in this state of constantly changing conditions, rising and passing. It really weakens the sense of conceit. Now this proliferation, this papancha, again, it's not like we have to get rid of it. The way the Buddha described it is just as a natural process. What one perceives, one thinks about. What one thinks about turns into this whole story of papancha. But then if we're not mindful of it, it really assails us. We really struggle. But again, the thoughts, when we know them for what they are, they can momentarily define our reality. I mean, it's really helpful, especially when we all agree on the definition. So for example, it works pretty well that we'll pretty much have an agreement on what it means to be a yogi, that at this moment we agree on the definition of reality that I'm talking and you're not talking, you know, that you know that you're a yogi or you know if you're a cook or you know if, if you're working in the office, you know, we know what's appropriate behavior for each of those things. You know, if one of you suddenly got up in the middle of the room and started screaming and dancing and jumping around, it would be really disturbing because it doesn't fit in with our agreed upon definition of things. So it's helpful, but it's to know that it's only a definition. 
you know, in this conditions, right at this moment, you guys are yogis. But that's not your definition for your whole life, you know. If you thought you were to behave like this all the time, there'd be some big problems. If I thought I had to go around lecturing people all the time, there'd be big problems too. So it's recognizing the definitions and what they're built on, but not attaching to them. That's the place that we get lost in the illusion and the tangle. So first, it's to see thoughts for what they are, to understand how papancha arises and gets fed and created, and then not to attach to it, not to take it for more than it is. Just because thoughts are powerful, they seem solid, just because they're connected with really strong, powerful emotions, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're an accurate description of anything. And we tend to think that the stronger it is and the stronger the emotion, that means it must be true. It's just not the case. There's a story the Buddha uh, told a lot, that you've probably heard it, um, about a widower, a man who was living with his young son, like five or six-year-old in a village in the time of the Buddha. And some bandits came. The man was out. And some bandits came and burned down the village, burned down his house, and kidnapped his son. And when the man came home, and he found the village destroyed, his house destroyed, and he found the remains of a little corpse that he assumed was his son, grief-stricken, just devastated. And he saved the little bones in this velvet bag and carried it around with him and just grieved and grieved. And quite some time later, the son escaped from the bandits, came back home, got, his father had rebuilt the house, got there about midnight or so, banging on the door, Father, let me in, let me in. And the man was so convinced of this reality he'd constructed, they said, go away, don't torment me, my son is dead, don't torture me in this way. And the boy keeps banging, the father keeps refusing, and finally he left, the little boy, and that they never saw each other again from then on. It's the story of the Buddha. And he, the Buddha ends it by saying, somewhere, sometime, you take something to be the truth. If you cling to it so much, when the truth comes in person and knocks at your door, you will not open it. This is the difference between recognizing papancha and proliferation for what it is and really being caught in it, not recognizing for what it is. And that's all. We don't have to get rid of it. We just have to recognize it. That's one way that we begin to find clarity and peace in this whole jumble of explanation and confusing experience. Another way, when the concepts are apparently so solid, and this is a lot of what we say in interviews, that there really somehow just isn't space to say, well, maybe my son really didn't die. You know, there's not even space to think that. Then the key in coming out of proliferation and back to bare experience is just what we've been practicing here, wise attention. Wise attention, concept of the Buddha based on the fact that we can really pay full attention, give our full attention to only one thing at a time. 
So when you're feeling really caught in the papancha, really in a solid concept and struggling, just notice, where is the attention right now? That's why so much of of mindfulness is coming back to the direct perception. An example that's often used, a, a simile by Buddhist teachers, that a thought is like if you throw a rock, that, that, that rock being thrown is like a thought. And if you throw that rock and hit a dog, the dog gets all excited and it thinks the rock is the cause of its problem and it runs around chasing the rock. That's what we do when we're just following out the concepts, we're following out the, the thought, the proliferation, running after it like a dog, you know. They say if you throw a rock at a lion, it completely, and it hits it, you know, it completely ignores the rock and just stares there, stares straight back at the source of throwing the rock. It just cuts through all the extra and gets right back to the source. That's the sense of wise attention. Bringing the attention to the direct source of the perception of the experience. If we can do that. So again, a simple example. You're sitting, the constellation of sensations, they're unpleasant, there's aversion. Again, it gives rise to this whole interpretation, I'm so blocked, I can never get feeling in this part of my body, I'm such a rigid, blocked person, and you're back into the whole story, I've got to release this, I've got to move through this, I've got to transform it, and that's just the beginning, and you find yourself in a whole series of struggling and self-judgment and condemnation and comparing and suffering. If you can, when you notice that, not try to talk yourself out of it, not try to make up a different explanation, but simply go, oh, what perception is this arising out of? And come back and simply feel that horrible sensation that proves what a blocked, dreadful person I am. And just keep coming back. Moment to moment, oh, yeah, this is burning, this is tightness, this is hardness. Just being with the direct perception without needing to make up a story or an explanation about it. In that direct perception, you'll notice all the explanations and the papancha that comes flying out. That's fine. Let it fly out and keep bringing the attention back to the direct perception, the bare experience that generated it. So with mindfulness, we have the ability to know thought, to know proliferation for what it is, to be able to be with the bare perception and know what's actually true, and to tell the difference. We don't need to spend our lives fighting an illusion or lost in a dream. We just don't need to do that. And that's really what we're doing every moment that we're with our bare experience here. So acknowledge the thoughts. Notice the mental state, the kalesa, that's feeding the proliferation. Notice how much and how fast the proliferation moves and how it leads to action. Bring the attention back to the source, the bare perception, can even notice times that moment of sense experience 
before the recognition. Just just keep noticing that when it happens. Notice the space between thoughts. Notice the times when we're not lost in a becoming, in an identity, in a definition. Just begin to notice all those times, coming back to the source of all of it, the source that's beyond any of this changing, confusing, unsatisfactory nature of things, the source beyond all the distortions and clingings. When we are caught in this illusion, when we are not seeing this process of proliferation and instead believing these descriptions to be an accurate reflection of the world, life is incredibly complicated and difficult at times and confusing at times. But in in fact, at the level of what's actually going on, it's so simple. It's so simple, it's awesome. Unbelievable. Our mind won't believe it. This, I think, is a paraphrase of my favorite, I think it's my favorite sutta of the Buddha. This man, he was, Buddha was on his alms round, and this man came up and begged him, begged him to give him some teachings. The Buddha said, well, wait till I finish eating. I'll go on my alms round, I'll come back. And the man said, no, I must have it right now, right now. And finally the Buddha assented, and this is the teaching that he gave him. And it was a good thing, because five minutes later, a wild bull came along and gored this guy, and he died. But he had this teaching, and it opened his heart and his understanding, and so it didn't matter. (laughs) (laughs) You know, can we really be that free of concept that it doesn't matter if we die? That's so amazing. It said, this is a total sidetrack, but it said that the Karmapa said on his deathbed, nothing happens. That's really amazing to me. It's one thing to talk about it, you know, when we're sitting here feeling all, you know, mindful and aware. It's another thing to be dying and really know nothing happens. Okay. Anyway, this is the Sutta the Buddha said. Just how simple things really are. In the scene, in what is seen, there is only the seen. In what is heard, there is only the heard. In what is smelled, there is only what is smelled. In what is tasted, there is only the tasted. In what is felt or sensed, there is only the sensed. What is cognized, known with the mind, there is only that process of cognizing. That is all. That's all. Everything else is interpretation. It's awesomely simple. There's one last quotation from Dilgo Kense Rinpoche. Mind creates both samsara and nirvana. This is a Mahayana view. Mind creates both samsara and nirvana, yet there's nothing much to it. It's just thoughts. Once we recognize that thoughts are empty, the mind will no longer have the power to deceive us. What is cognized is just the cognized. That's all.
Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.